It's Monday, October 18th. I'm Oscar Ramirez in Los Angeles, and this is The Daily Dive. It's always a little worrisome when a former president goes into the hospital, but former President Bill Clinton has responded well to his medications and has been discharged after a urological infection went into his bloodstream. He will now go back home to New York to continue treatment. Ginger Gibson, Deputy Washington Digital Editor at NBC News, joins us for the update on Bill Clinton and what is next for Election Day. The race for governor in Virginia and school board races across the country are making education a central issue as critical race theory and COVID rules loom large. Next, what happens when you order things online and send them back? You may think it makes its way back to the shelf and on its way to another person, but that is rarely true. Oftentimes, items make their way to bulk resellers overseas, they're stripped for parts, or just thrown away. Returns are a big problem for companies that are expected to have generous return policies as a default. These reverse logistics are many times cost prohibitive to deal with. Amanda Mull, staff writer at The Atlantic, joins us for the nasty logistics of returning your online items. It's news without the noise. Let's dive in. He was put in the ICU more as a precautionary measure to keep him isolated away from all the other germs of the hospital. And because when a president, even a former one, is in the hospital, there's a lot of complications that come with that logistically. Joining us now is Ginger Gibson, Deputy Washington Digital Editor at NBC News. Thanks for joining us, Ginger. Glad to be back. Let's start off with uh, former President Bill Clinton. It's always a little scary when a former president falls ill. This past week, he was being treated at UC Irvine Medical Center, uh, was just released on Sunday. He had a urological infection that spread to his bloodstream. Um, but, you know, as I mentioned, anytime something like this happens, you know, a lot of people get very concerned right away. That's right. And the office of the former president have been insistent from as soon as news broke that he had been hospitalized, that this wasn't a very serious case, that he had had an infection, that it was neurological, that it had gone to the bloodstream. But he wasn't experiencing septic shock, which is sort of the really serious thing that can happen when an infection gets into your bloodstream. He was put in the ICU more as a precautionary measure to keep him isolated away from all the other germs of the hospital. And because when a president, even a former one, is in the hospital, there's a lot of complications that come with that logistically. Yeah, and I think at, at the very beginning, the first thing we heard was that it was sepsis and things like that. So uh, obviously, like as I mentioned, the concern grows right away. And, you know, Bill Clinton has had a number of health problems, uh, a quadruple bypass, two stents put in him, caused him to change his diet completely, I think mostly vegetarian now. That's right. He is a mostly vegetarian eater now. He doesn't drink like he used to. He's a lot more active. The heart conditions really scared him um, several years ago, and he's really changed his habits since then, and I think is really determined to stay healthy. So he's not that young, but he's he's not that old either. So <laughs> I, I think we've got many more years to yeah. go. Well, yeah, his uh, treatment is going to continue. He's going back to uh, New York where he lives, obviously, and he'll, he'll continue that treatment with his doctors there. Let's move on to Election Day coming pretty soon again in November. The big race uh, around uh, the country seems to be the race in Virginia where Terry McAuliffe is running against Glenn Youngkin. And the big issue there seems to be schools and education. You know, there's a lot being made about things like uh, critical race theory. Pandemic school closures is obviously a big thing. President Obama is going to be going down there at the end of the week to campaign for Terry McAuliffe. So, uh, but these are the big issues that they're really talking about there. 
as uh, a Virginia resident myself, both candidates have sent someone to knock on my door today. So (laughs) they're in full swing. And you're right. Education is an issue that Republican Glenn Youngkin is really sort of setting a model that the rest of the nation's Republicans could follow. For starters, he's sort of tried to nod to Donald Trump without embracing Donald Trump. Trump hasn't come to campaign with him in the state, although he did accept his endorsement and he has spoken highly of him at some points while also sort of saying that what the president, the former president said about the 2020 election is not true and that Joe Biden rightfully won that election. But the education issues, we really see these fights over what's being taught in the classroom about race and U.S. history continue to really sort of inflame tensions, particularly in the suburbs. And he is really poking at those tensions, trying to tell parents that he is really the only option to ensure that students continue to get a fair education and aren't being taught, as he and critics say, that white people are inherently racist. There's been some fact checkers looking into it. Apparently, critical race theory itself is not even really taught in Virginia schools. So, you know, that's a thing. Uh, you mentioned you're a resident there. How have the, the political ads been? That's right. McAuliffe will tell you insistently that there's no critical race theory taught in Virginia schools. So they're debating a non-point. But at, at a debate, McAuliffe asked about a bill he had vetoed some number of years ago dealing with a different issue, said he thought that parents shouldn't tell teachers what to teach in schools. And that line has really just become a drumbeat for Yunkin, and he's blanketed the air with ads repeating that line over and over again, suggesting that he doesn't think parents should have any say. And and that is really feeding his criticism that Democrats want to teach children things that their parents would not approve of. Okay, so that's Virginia. But beyond that, some more lesser known races right all across the country, school board races are also getting a lot of play now from outside groups, from PACs for a lot of the same issues, really. The critical race theory, pandemic closures, masks, not wearing masks is a huge issue. And these outside groups are all you know, making endorsements and, and really getting involved in, in really these nonpartisan offices. And pumping lots of money into these races, spending on their own. Citizens United really set it up for these outside groups to spend just huge sums of money. And you're right, talking about critical race theory, talking about the way that history is taught in school, talking about COVID measures. There's a lot of criticism among these groups for mass requirements for students. And now we're hearing more criticism of vaccine requirements for students, even in places where they haven't been implemented. So I think that this is really just the front lines of this fight are these school board elections. And we're seeing an unprecedented, perhaps, amount of attention on them. And finally, uh, just uh, touching in with our police officers around the country, they also are resisting a lot of vaccine mandates, fighting with city officials over it. Uh, Police union officials are telling officers, you know, don't disclose your vaccine status. So uh, another issue that has yet to be resolved, too. That's right. I mean, we're seeing democratically controlled cities fighting with their unions. And historically, they have been much closer allies instead of enemies. But resisting these vaccine mandates for police and other first responders that cities and states are putting into place, the unions really pushing back on behalf of their members. We still believe that it's a small fraction, right? It's like hospitals where maybe one percent of staff don't want to get the vaccine, but especially in places where they're unionized and a union leader is telling the entirety, you know, not to report their status to protect that small minority that doesn't want to, where these fights are really getting more heated. And I think we're going to see some of the fallout here in the near future. Ginger Gibson, Deputy Washington Digital Editor at NBC News. Thank you very much for joining us. Thanks for having me. 
so we're in a situation where people who shop online for shoes, for clothes, for cosmetics, for home furnishings, for literally anything, expect to be able to buy a bunch of stuff they don't know if they actually want or don't know if it will fit and return it. Joining us now is Amanda Mull, staff writer at The Atlantic. Thanks for joining us, Amanda. Thank you for having me. I wanted to talk about an interesting story you wrote, the nasty logistics of returning items that you might have bought online. It's kind of baked into, you know, all sorts of businesses now. These, uh, you know, buy a bunch of different sizes, buy a bunch of different items and return anything you want. Free shipping, free returns. But, you know, what happens when you do return those items? A lot of times things are thrown away. Sometimes they're shipped to other countries to be resold. There's really a lot of waste that goes with it. And part of it, you know, obviously the clothing is such a huge part of online sales right now. For myself, I'm a little old school still. I, I like to go into the stores, try things on. So if it doesn't fit, you know, I'm buying the right price. But the way online shopping has gone now and, the, you know, how so many people buy things online, you'll buy multiple sizes, you know, whatever fits, doesn't, everything gets turned back. And the reverse logistics of this, sending things back is kind of a mess. So Amanda, start us off a little bit with what we're seeing here. Like you mentioned, there are these sort of like the suite of behaviors that online shopping has incentivized people into. And sometimes not just incentivized, but explicitly encouraged people to adopt. Ordering multiple sizes, ordering stuff you're not sure about it with the promise that you can return it in 30 days or in a year or in six months or however long with no risk and with a full refund. Things like that. These promises, these incentives exist in order to convert people from shopping in person, which is what people have done since the dawn of time, <laughs> since as long as we've had commerce, to shopping online. And for a lot of types of purchases, clothing, shoes, cosmetics in particular, it was a little bit difficult to encourage people to start ordering these things on the internet because personal taste and uh, fit and sort of the indescribable qualities of something matter a lot to a person in these types of purchases. So in order to convert people to online shopping and to get them used to buying more and more types of goods on the internet, retailers basically had to set up this litany of policies to make people feel comfortable doing that, to take away all of the risk from buying a pair of jeans on the internet instead of driving to the mall and buying it in person. And that has really sort of shaped the way that people understand online shopping and that people understand what will happen after they buy something and their expectations of how stores will act if they want to send something back. So we're in a situation where people who shop online for shoes, for clothes, for cosmetics, for home furnishings, for literally anything, expect to be able to buy a bunch of stuff they don't know if they actually want or don't know if it will fit and return it and get their full refund and have weeks or sometimes months in order to do that. Yeah, it, um, it, it's really baked in now. And there's I know there's people that shop specifically on that. It's like if they don't have a good return policy, then, you know, I'm going to take my business elsewhere. People really expect these types of policies when they're looking to make a purchase online now because it's been really widely adopted. And there's a lot of consumer research showing that if your company does not offer, you know, at the very least, a 30-day full money-back guarantee policy, then people just won't order stuff from you. And the competition is so stiff online that, that retailers can't really afford to not offer these policies. So you get people ordering a lot of stuff that they're not sure about, a lot of stuff that might not fit, and sending it back. And as a consumer, once you've turned something over to the post office, dropped it in the mail, whatever, 
your visibility of, of what happens to that thing basically ends. Right. Um, and that is largely by design <laughs> because I think that if people understood what happened after they return something this way or what might happen, they would be a lot less likely to buy as much as they do. And it's in the best interest of stores for you to buy a lot. So let's talk about the scope of this real quick. Estimates vary, but in the past year, they say that one third to one half of all clothing bought in the U.S. came from the Internet. So you know, when you're talking about return rates, the average brick and mortar store has a return rate in the single digits. But online, this is anywhere from 15 to 30 percent. And retailers took back more than 100 billion dollars in merchandise sold online. So we're talking about a lot of stuff coming back. Now, let's get into some of the messy part. What happens when stuff gets sent back? Like I said, it'll go to bulk resellers sometimes. Sometimes, you know, if they're electronics or something, they'll be stripped for parts. And a lot of times things are just plainly thrown away. What happens after you return something depends largely on what that thing is. If it's a dress from a fast fashion store, a lot of times that will just be thrown away. Because if you, if you look at the numbers of it and the companies who sell this stuff are just going on math. They're not going on anything else. By one estimate, every return costs a, a retailer 10 to $20 before you factor in the cost of shipping in either direction. So if you are you know, sending something back at the end of the return policy, which might be 30 days, might be 60 days, and it's a fast fashion dress, then it's not clear, it's not obvious whether or not that thing will even still be for sale on the retailer's website for it to be restocked and sent to somebody else. It's also not clear whether that thing can be can be sold at full price if it is still stocked because fast fashion in particular turns over so fast and because it, its fit tends to be really variable. The quality of goods tends to be really unpredictable. It has yeah. both really high return rates and really pretty bad rates of restocking. That's why in some cases they even just say, hey, well, keep that size, maybe gift it to somebody else. We're going to send you the right size. It's like we don't even want to deal with it coming back. Just hand it off to somebody else. And retailers like Amazon, Target, I think Walmart also have started just telling people to keep stuff that they want to return in the past couple of years, which is sort of giving away the game here. Because if they're not taking it back, it's because they would lose money taking it back. So this whole process for one item is often just too expensive to accommodate some of the cheap stuff that people buy and people buy it by the container load. So when that happens, things are either going to be thrown away, just put directly into a landfill, or they're going to be offloaded to a sort of gray market that not a lot of people are aware of. And that stuff gets sold off by the pound, by the pallet, by the container load. Some of that will go to outlet stores, off price stores, TJ Maxx, things like that big lots to be sold again, hopefully, and if not, then probably thrown away. Or it gets sold to middlemen who ship it overseas and piece by piece go through it and see what they might be able to sell to people in poorer countries through stores there. And then what they don't think they can sell in stores there gets thrown away. So it becomes a trash problem in another country. Right. But it's really hard <laughs> to keep track of what happens to any of this after it's off the initial retailer's books. They aren't keeping track. Here's the point where you start thinking, why don't people start donating this stuff more? Why don't companies donate this? And that's another problem, too, with with money, obviously. You know, they, you, there's a thing called brand dilution. You start giving away things too much. It's going to make, uh, you know, some of your other stuff seem less valuable. So it's not in their best interest to even donate things that are really just going to be going to waste. And you especially get into this with things that are sort of like upmarket branded. 
so name brand shoes, clothing, things like that. There, there have been a, a number of distinct scandals over the years with particular luxury brands who have been caught destroying, burning, shredding piles of winter coats and things like that, which are, are things that, you know, people in the United States need. That's under no circumstances something that everybody has access to here. But those things end up destroyed because the calculation that brands do is that if they start clothing poor people, essentially, with their with their wares and with their brand name, then the people who buy their stuff for full price are going to decide that it's not worth that anymore. So their branding, theoretically, cannot survive right. charity. The retail logistics industry is in two parts. The forward logistics, which is all the stuff, moving it from the manufacturers all the way down to us. Reverse logistics is what we're talking about right now that gets really messy it's expensive for the companies to take it back. And like, as we've been discussing, a lot of times doesn't get restocked, any of that. So what do companies say about this? I mean, this is a, it seems to be a threat, at least money-wise, you know, how this baked-in idea now that everything should be able to be returned regardless, it's expensive. So what do companies uh, say about it? What are they doing about it? This is one of those sort of rare topics in consumerism where basically everyone involved agrees that this is bad and that we wish it weren't like this. Right. Reverse logistics, two different experts that I spoke to for the article use the word nasty to describe it. It is really expensive, labor intensive, sometimes literally gross work to do. They would rather not have to deal with it. They would rather find good ways to, to limit their returns and to ensure that more people who bought from their stores actually kept their merchandise. That would make a lot of things about their businesses a lot easier. But they've got a consumer base that has a lot of choices and that has, has been incentivized into a certain set of behaviors that really nobody is willing to let go of. I think that, you know, as far as everyone I spoke to and, and what I know about the consumer industry, what would probably have to happen for this to change to any significant extent would have to be some sort of regulation on how on how retailers are allowed to dispose of their extras. You know, probably Amazon deciding yeah. that they just don't want to play this game anymore yeah. and that you're going to have to keep your stuff if you order it and relying on the fact that they are so big and so deeply woven into so many people's lives to cushion the fact that they would probably lose some customers over that. And then once the big boys do it, the smaller companies are sort of free to move in line with those policies. But until until someone with some real power decides that this is something that's not going to be tolerated anymore, I think people are just going to end up continuing to engage in this behavior. And for a lot of people, like if you live in a rural area, if you don't have reliable transportation, if you wear a size outside of a really narrow norm, if you are disabled in certain ways that make it harder to use physical stores for you, or if you just live in a place where a lot of the stores have closed because everybody shops online now, you know, you might not have a lot of great options except ordering three sizes of one thing on the internet and <laughs> right. trying to figure out, you know, what your size is at a, at a new store or something like that. Even if you don't want to partake in that behavior, even if you understand that it's bad, there are just a lot of circumstances that sort of push you into it because that is how the retail powers that be have decided that this is going to work. Amanda Mull, staff writer at The Atlantic, thank you very much for joining us. Thank you so much for having me. That's it for today. Join us on social media, at Daily Dive Pod on both Twitter and Instagram. Leave us a comment, give us a rating, and tell us the stories that you're interested in. Follow us on iHeartRadio or subscribe wherever you get your podcast. This episode of The Daily Dive is produced by Victor Wright and engineered by Tony Sorrentino. 
I'm Oscar Ramirez, and this was your Daily Dive.